Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 26 of Your Cases on Hold. This is the January 18th, 2023 uh, issue dropping on January 17th. I am Andrew Schoenfeld, the Ruthven Family Professor of Hematology and Lieutenant in the Order of Prince Danilo, the first of Montenegro, also Deputy Editor of Methods at the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, and my colleague. Antonia, I'm just a minion, also Deputy yes. Editor of Perfect. Adult Reconstruction. Professional minion. <laughs> um, Better than lemming. There's lemming, minion, you know, options. Yeah. <laughs> minions at least have their own, you know, mind about certain things, I guess. It's better to be a minion than a lemming, but maybe that's debatable. At the end of the day, we are here to cover the best and brightest in the January 18th issue of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. The opinions and the takes, which are going to be hot. This is going to be a controversial one. I've been looking forward to this one. This is we're ready to go here. Uh, you need to buckle up. But uh, these these are our own opinions. They do not reflect on those of the editorial board, the editors in chief, or the board of trustees of the journal. Do like and subscribe. Do give us a five star rating if you can on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to uh, check in every other Tuesday, basically, for uh, each issue that drops of Your Cases on Hold. This is brought to you by the uh, Miller Review course. It is that time of year again, and uh, everyone should uh, be checking in. And uh, for those who are looking for recertification or taking the step one test for the first time, or are just interested in um, getting a handle on the latest and greatest in orthopedics, there's no better place than the Miller Review course, an outstanding faculty and some really great engagement and a lot of material in a relatively short period of time. So moving on to top of the pile, what's new in adult reconstructive knee surgery from Villa and colleagues, which is permanently free? We have what's important tackling the challenges of orthopedic care in Chad with Martin and colleagues, also permanently free. Cobalt mining in the Democratic Republic of the Congo for orthopedic implants, a complex ethical issue with no simple solutions by Seacrest, strategies for deficit recovery for the orthopedic service line, lessons learned from the COVID-19 pandemic by day. Those are all some great articles for you to check out at the top of the pile. Next, we have the headlines. So I will be going first. Mine is Fracture in Patients with Normal Bone Mineral Density, an Evaluation of the American Orthopedic Association's Own the Bone Registry. This is um, a study of 7,219 patients over the age of 50 who sustained a fracture between July 2016 and July 2021 and were then subsequently uh, entered into the AOA Own the Bone Registry. To be included for this particular investigation, they then also had to have a DEXA bone density study. So the authors are interested in looking at the characteristics of patients who sustained a fracture and who then also had normal bone mineral density. 
This is about 9% of, of the cohort. And they then wanted to see, you know, what were their FRAC scores? Maybe how can we, you know, catch these patients early on, maybe before they fracture? Or what are the characteristics of these patients? They found that the index fracture was a major osteoporotic fracture. So, you know, the classic hip fracture, distal radius, or, or um, uh, spinal fracture in close to 70% of the patients with normal bone mineral density, and 76% of patients who actually had osteoporosis. And the FRAC score, without taking into account bone mineral density, was elevated in 73% of patients with the normal bone de- mineral density who then had a fracture. And if you included bone mineral density, which then would account for the fact that it was normal, so it will lower the score, I think, then you have only about 12% of patients with uh, the, the uh, FRAX risk elevated. So what they're saying is that patients with a fracture and norm, normal bone mineral density who then do have a fracture. So that's the point that they're kind of like, that patients with a fracture, normal bone mineral density they do have indications for anti-osteoporotic therapy, whether they actually had a prior fracture that was missed. And in some cases, this was like a foot and ankle injury or something along those lines. But this is a potential another group that may need uh, additional treatment or targeting. I think it's an interesting study. I think that there, there are some flaws here because they're only in this registry because they had a fracture. So once they have a fracture, then like talking about them being at risk for a fracture is sort of a moot point because you already know that they have a fracture. They're here because they had a fracture. So then talking about ways that you could have caught them earlier on, you know, there's a, there's a selection and an indication bias that's, that's kind of baked in. And there's no way for them to, to uh, get around that. Uh, another way to present this work would have been, what are the characteristics of patients who have a fracture and normal bone mineral density? Obviously, they have to create some drama, if you will, or a selling point. And that's where you get this argument that, oh, there's this other group of patients that we already know from prior work that we've covered fairly recently, that even with the patients with the fractures, the ones that are like, it's clear cut, these are patients at high risk, they're not even getting the the appropriate osteoporosis medication. So I'm like, can we take care of the patients with the sentinel fractures first but before we get into this? It seems that there, there's a bit of an ivory tower argument here, which is like there may be other high-risk groups that, that haven't been identified yet. And we really need to, to bring these. It's a very small number of patients, 9% of the cohort. And I'm not minimizing it. I, I get if, you know, if, if there's any way that you can prevent a fracture, it's valuable. But creating a policy endeavor is is really what I'm I'm calling into question with this with at least with the data that they have and again taking into account the selection and indication bias I think it's hard to make a policy based argument I, I think that that's the the fundamental root stance that 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 I'm taking well my stance is there's a fracture I must fix it but besides that <laughs> there is arthritis it must be replaced <laughs> it must be fixed uh, I completely agree with you. So, you know, it's it's interesting information, you know, normal bone mineral density. And I think what I take away is too is, you know, as an orthopedic surgeon, a lot of times we fix on numbers, right? So we say, oh, your bone mineral density is fine. You'll be okay. But, you know, we do have to be vigilant of this, but you don't want to not take care of those patients who are going to have fractures or are going at risk of sustaining fractures. So I completely concur with you, doctor. It's good to be concurred with. <laughs> 
So you're talking about different bones and multiple parts of the body and fractures. I'm going to talk about one tiny little bone in the body. So this bone in the body is the patella. So my headline one is, does a choice of patella implant in total knee arthroplasty matter? A randomized comparative trial of three commonly used designed by Gabra et al. And there is a commentary on it. So just like the past, if you don't believe me, you can also read the commentary. So the patella is the forgotten joint, uh, sorry, forgotten bone of the knee. It's actually an important part of the knee there. And if you resurface the patella, the question is what type of implant should you use? So the study looked at three different types of implants, inlay, onlay round, and onlay oval patella implants. And the inlay is one that you actually put into the bone itself. And it's interesting, actually, I myself have actually never seen an inlay implant before, but it is one of those things that does exist and it is something to consider using. So it's a narrow group of patients that they've really looked at. Um, They took patients and they did randomize patients into three groups. They did a sample size calculation based on the Kujala score. Kujala score is not a commonly used one in the arthroplasty world, but it is specifically for patellofemoral. So that's why they selected it. They said it had to be 40 per group in each uh, group. So their sample size, they really did get to the 40 people per group and they didn't account for any dropout. Now, luckily they were able to have good follow-up at two years, which is fantastic. But it's one of those things where they do have, they normally want to build in some dropout, but the sample sizes did have 40 at least per group. It is a narrow group of patients. There were a lot of exclusion criteria, some which made sense if the history of patella fracture, they may not want to resurface the um, patella. And they looked at a whole bunch of different other implants. They actually exclude something like systemic inflammatory disease, which is kind of surprising because normally systemic inflammatory disease is one of the reasons we resurface the patella. So, you know, this is one of those studies where typically it's resurfaced versus non-resurfaced. In this case, it was all different types of resurfacing. Again, the score that they used was not commonly used. What was interesting is they added patella vascularity. So they did this by uh, regional three-phase bone scan with single photon emission um, spect. They looked at the vascularity at six months. Now, what's interesting, they follow these patients up to two years. I would actually love to see the vascularity at two years as opposed to just the six-month time frame. But it is a good t- com, uh, time point or endpoint that's not commonly used in these patella studies. This is from my methodology editor friend here. The authors noted an as-treated protocol, so that's how the analysis was performed. But then they excluded one patient that had to be converted from inlay to onlay oval. And if you're going from an as-treated protocol, why wouldn't you just include this patient because they were treated with something, as opposed to if they were treated with non-resurfacing, then exclusion makes sense. The exclusion criteria was history of patella fracture, not concurrent or current patella fracture. So I'm just curious they could do that or doing like an intention to treat protocol if they wanted to do the initial one. So food for thought there. It was one patient, so it's not a big deal there, but something to think about from a methodology standpoint. So the study showed that there was similar survivorship at a minimum of two years, on the mean of five years, and they had similar scores. This um, uh, Kujala score was similar between groups. Um, what they did show that, they, and they had similar blood flow. So those were all similarities between the three types of implants. Compared to the inlay group, the oval round group showed greater improvements in Coos activities of daily living and Coos quality of life, and also compared to the onlay oval one. But the onlay oval exhibited better bone coverage, lower lateral fastectomy rates. They define that as needing to take off if there's more than three millimeters or more on the lateral facet, and then less lateral underhand compared with the inlay and the onlay round designs. 
They also looked at radiographs and not surprisingly, those that had the oval ones, which is shifted over by three millimeter had less tilt in the merchant view, which is that sunrise view compared with inlay and onlay round and less lateral contact with the onlay oval because the center portion is shifted a little bit off laterally. So there should be less lateral contact. So the interesting thing, it's kind of like they had a bunch of data, did analyses on it, and they found differences with them. Ultimately, the difference of the patellofemoral joint was similar between groups. But that said, there were some areas such as bony differences, coos scores, but whether or not the actual onlay versus uh, round versus onlay oval makes any difference. The authors basically said at the end of the day that they that you should use an onlay implant, not an inlay implant, but they're basing that purely on potential differences in coos ADLs and coos quality of life, um, but not high margins. And they didn't really give good explanations as to why the onlay round group had better improvements in these patient-reported outcome scores, which is probably a detriment to the scores as well, too. But they did recommend that. So onlay, they say, is the way to go. And they didn't differentiate between onlay round versus onlay oval with regards to outcomes. I would say it is well done methodology-wise, but ultimately... There is the uh, issue of, like you said, if it if it is as treated, then you just do it in the group that that the patient was with the treatment that they got. But it is also one patient, so not sure how much of a of an impact uh, that that will be. Moving on to your cases on hold, and here is a case that I'm interested if it will be on hold or not, particularly from your end, because I think you're right in the middle of some uh, robotic computer navigated uh, surgeries right now. So uh, let's get ready to rumble, as they say. The uh, Reverse Fragility Index, interpreting the current literature on long-term survivorship of computer-navigated versus conventional total knee arthroplasty, a systematic review and cross-sectional study of randomized controlled trials by she and colleagues. There is a commentary, so you don't have to take our word for it, or any of the points that we're going to make here. And I think there will be several. And I'm, I'm really interested in getting your take on this. I, I'll present my take first, which is that, you know, there's just an exponential increase in the types of robotic surgeries that are being done, computer navigation, all of these uh, technical advancements, both on the arthroplasty side and in the spine space as well. And these are advertised as, as ways to provide you know, better care, but it is incredibly costly. And there's a great deal of um, disposables uh, that uh, go along with this. Um, it can also add to, to procedural and OR time. So there is a kind of a paradox there between wanting to provide you know, what really is futuristic cutting-edge care, robotic surgery, let's be honest. I mean, it doesn't get more futuristic than that against like, well, what are the actual benefits? And I think that the, the authors are a little bit concerned that up until now, the randomized controlled trials that have been done have not shown decided benefits for the robot. And this has led the AOS CPG, current practice guideline, to suggest that the increased cost and operative times associated with the utilization of computer navigation do not lead to improved functional outcomes or implant survivorship. So there's not a, a recommendation endorsing it, essentially. And the authors wanted to go back and have a look at what they call the reverse fragility index. The fragility index is generally when there's a positive finding, you know, how many 
patients in the opposite direction would lead that positive finding to become a negative. And the reverse fragility index uh, does the opposite and quantifies the, the strength of the study's neutrality by calculating the minimum number of events necessary to flip the result from non-significant to significant. And to that, they're also looking at the number of patients lost to, to follow up. So they had 10 clinical trials with 2,500 plus patients, very small number of revisions, only 38 all-cause revisions. And all 10 studies reported non-significant or really no difference between the computer-navigated and, and conventional total knee arthroplasty. So they say, well, all right, but let's, let's look at how fragile these findings are. And you know, they, they're basically saying that there's a small number of patients would be needed to have a positive result to then make this a significant finding. They're saying that the threshold was four, meaning that just a median of four events would be needed to change the results from non-significant to significant. And then also that the loss to follow-up was 27 patients on the median. So because the median number of patients exceeded the relatively small estimate in terms of the reverse fragility index, essentially these studies are invalid and everyone, of course, should adopt the computer-navigated robotic technology. They also are keen to point out that non-randomized studies, studies that are inherently prone to bias, do show benefits of uh, robot-assisted, computer-navigated surgery. And then they have a number of different talking points, some of which are really tangential. And we've, we've talked about the uh, Kaiser-Sose phenomenon in the past. I have a new phenomenon. It's called the Jackie Childs phenomenon. Jackie Childs is a lawyer from the Seinfeld uh, universe. I, I actually erroneously attributed the Chewbacca defense to him. That's actually a different character uh, in a different show. But the Jackie Childs phenomenon is where you don't like something, and then you build a case around it by using just tangential arguments, some of which just don't make sense. But it's like, if the argument itself seems reasonable then you should discount what it is that I want you to discount. For example, Jackie Childs wants to defend the Seinfeld crew, and he says they were bystanders. They're innocent bystanders. Have you ever heard of a guilty bystander? No. Bystander is innocent just based on the definition. So don't let them change the definition on you to guilty bystander. And that's like his whole like defense for the, the Seinfeld crew. You can look it up on, on YouTube. And that's kind of what they're doing here. They just keep moving the goalposts. Like it used to be good enough. You did RCT, and if the p-values were not significant, and it's a well-powered study. You have a result. It's it's a foundational experiment for for our scientific universe, and it's it's the gold standard. It's the sine qua non of scientific research. But now, now they want to say, and this is quoting them: routine reporting of the reverse fragility index with non-significant findings should provide readers with a measure of confidence in the neutrality of the results. This is not usual or customary. So if you don't find the answer that you want, in some cases, this is important. In a case like this, where the face validity, working with patients who have these kinds of procedures and, and um, connecting with colleagues who do these interventions, the events that they typically avoid, misplaced hardware or in, in a spine case, malpositioned pedicle screw, or I imagine components that are not machined properly from a total joint standpoint are exceedingly rare. And we know this because as they say, again, this is quoting them, 
One recent simulation power analysis noted it would take over 5,000 patients to detect a long-term survivorship benefit resulting from the use of computer navigation. And then they present that as, they missed the point on this entirely because they present that as saying, well, if you can't get 5,000 patients, then you just can't prove how good this really is. When what it's actually saying is that the event rate for what this changes, the the frame shift and what this provides is so small. If it were cost neutral, if it were a zero sum game, then sure, all for it. Like we want everything that makes patient care better. But when these robots are incredibly expensive and in some ways have, have large amounts of disposable waste associated with them and they increase OR time, they reduce efficiency, there are probably certain cases, complex revisions, things like that, where they definitely come into play. For every single total knee arthroplasty that has a low risk of requiring a revision, I think it's hard to make the case that this is like a universal thing. And we're going to contest these 10 randomized controlled trials, which all had to have a power analysis in and of themselves. We're all, we'll assume, reasonably well done to be published in the literature. We're going to contest it based on the fact that they didn't, they need to reach these, these new benchmarks that we've we've just established ourselves and and in some cases are really tangential then they make the case that they want to extrapolate a one percent difference in survivorship to the number of of procedures that are being done and say this could lead to a 5500 fewer revisions but that's if only all the revisions can be averted by the robot which we know they can't revisions happen because of patellar tendon dysfunction. They happen because of polyethylene wear, which I don't know if that can be impacted by the robot or not. But the number one is infection. The number one is infection. And so the, the making the argument that using the robot is going to decrease infection, in fact, if it's increasing OR times, I would say it's, it's the opposite. So we have a new Jackie Childs phenomenon at play here. And they're definitely getting the phone call about the case being on hold. What say you? Well, currently my case is on hold, so this is perfect. I mean, to have a nice discussion got about all the time in the world peace, which is exactly right. It's on pack you hold, it's on other holds. There's holds everywhere. That said, I'm glad for your methodology take because that's what the interesting part is. So, just as clarification, this is for computer navigation, not robotics. Now, can right. that be extrapolated right. to it? It's possible, but there's not enough RCTs, I don't think, on robotics cases yet to to do this. So what I worry about this piece is that it open is going to might open up Pandora's box, right? To your point is that everyone might now take every single randomized controlled trial, and if they don't like the results of it, then go ahead and do a analysis like this and say, well, there's four more cases, all it took it to, to flip it over. So it's a Kaiser Sose in a different way, right? This isn't going to show up on your ITEs, right? But this is the danger uh, lurking underneath your statistical studies that are going to come to be. So I, I agree. I, I would say I would caution the take-home message on this. It is an interesting um, analysis in that like this is not something we commonly see in orthopedic literature. But there's probably a reason for that, in all honesty. And um, those randomized controlled trials, to your point, you know, have to be powered, et cetera, et cetera. So they're not coming from nothing. So... I completely agree with your analyses. I I wouldn't, you know, change the study findings based on what we already know in literature, right? Because of this. So just be careful using this methodology throughout other studies in literature. And um, I would take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, check it out, see what they have to say, make your own judgments. Don't take it from us. Moving on to the honorable mentions, non-operative versus operative treatment for displaced finger metacarpal shaft fractures, a prospective non-inferiority randomized controlled trial, more great randomized controlled research presented in the journal. 
by Parenson et al. There's a visual summary, and this is permanently free. We then have outcomes of periacetabular osteotomy for borderline acetabular dysplasia with NEPL and colleagues. This is 30 days free, so act now while supplies last. And this also has a commentary, so check it out. Then we have mechanical failures in magnetic intramedullary lengthening nails by Luca and colleagues. This is permanently free. And then last, time to positivity of cultures obtained for periprosthetic joint infection by Tara Beachy and colleagues. This has a commentary and an infographic for our visual learner friends. That's going to wrap it up for this issue of the journal. There's a lot to check out here. Some very controversial stuff that I know we covered. Again, remember, the takes are hot, sometimes intentionally so. Really want to stimulate your interest in looking at this work and making the judgment call for yourself. We're out of time for this episode. We'll do better next time. And we look forward to seeing you again as we break into the first issue of the February 2023 JBJS. And hopefully your case is not still on hold like mine is. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>